Hello, this is Father David Nix at the Padre Peregrino podcast. Tonight we are going to be discussing Freemasonry and Black Lives Matter with David L. Gray. David Gray is an African-American Catholic theologian and historian. His published work, Inside Prince Hall Freemasonry, predates his conversion to Catholicism. David holds a Bachelor's of Science in Business Administration from Central State University, Ohio, and a Master's of Arts in Catholic Theology from Ohio Dominican University. He is the founder and president of St. Dominic's Media and resides in the greater St. Louis area with his wife, Felicia, who is also a Catholic convert. He hosts a weekly show on all 38 stations of Guadalupe Radio Network, The David L. Gray Show, voicing truth and reason. And most importantly, he is the proud father of four daughters who are also Catholic converts. His website will say at the end, and we're going to ask you right now so we don't bother you the whole time. Please subscribe to both of our YouTube channels, mine here at Padre Peregrino and his at David L. Gray. You need that L in there so you don't get that melancholic musician I grew up <laughs> listening to. David L. Gray, thanks for coming today. Father Dave, Nick, it's a pleasure to be here. I'm excited. You know who I'm talking about, that musician? Oh, yeah. I mean, I can't help it. I mean, because people bring him up. So yeah, I think I'm probably listen to one, one song in my life, maybe, but yeah. Probably Babylon. That was a that was the famous one. That was a famous one. Yeah. <laughs> and what was your website again? David L. Gray dot info. David. Okay. David L. Gray dot info. Okay. Awesome. Well, tonight, I you know we had a hard time deciding because uh, off the air we hit it off discussing Freemasonry, the history of that, and Black Lives Matter, and um, so I think we're gonna go with both to tell you the truth. David was quite high in one of the African-American lodges of Freemasonry before his conversion to Christianity, and then went from what denomination of Christianity? Um, just loosely Protestant. Yeah. You know, after I converted, it was just, you know. two. So two conversions, and then now he's at home in the Catholic Church. And you all go to sometimes— you kind of uh, did the circuit through the uh, Old Mass, the New Mass, and the Byzantine liturgy. You've— yeah. Worshipped at all three of those, huh? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, tell us a little bit about your conversion from Freemasonry to Christianity, and then kind of from non-Dom Christianity to the fullness of Catholicism, if if we can jump in right there. Yeah, I, I kind of, well, Freemasonry was just one of those things that that, that happened for me. I kind of knew when I was a kid I would be a Freemason because well, I wanted to be. It was sort of expected in, in, in a war in Ohio, um, in a black community that, um, you know, if you come an age and, and being becoming a Freemason is something that you, you you do. It was Freemasons were well respected. They were well thought of in African American Episcopal Church, where I went to most of the time with my my grandmother. Um, you know, Freemasonry has always played a predominant role in that. The African American Episcopal Church was started by Richard Allen, who was a Freemason. For the longest time, to be a bishop in the AME Church, you had to be a Freemason. So, um, so it's just one of those things that you know, my grandmother said, "Oh, you're going to be a Freemason one day." You know, so once I got to college, you know, it was an opportunity there for me to do it. I didn't think I was going to be able to until later on in life. But um, so yeah, I'm a sophomore in college, and I become a Freemason. And, and what attracted me to Freemasonry back then was well, I was definitely anti-Christian. Uh, I, I was open to the idea of there being a God. Sometimes I was agnostic. Sometimes I was, I was a deist, depending upon how life was going for me. But Christianity was definitely out of the, out of the picture for me because I, it, you know, first of all, I can really reconcile how you had all these different Protestant denominations, and all of them professing the same Christ, same Bible, but. 
seems to be competing with one another. And I was not church when I was a kid. I mean, I grew up in a very Protestant family, right? A lot of a lot of different denominations going on there. And like I said, I, I would usually be with my grandmother at her church, but I was never what they would call the Protestants. I was never what they would call churched, right? I, I never had it. Jesus Christ articulated to me, never really had the Bible taught to me. So I was very a nominal Protestant in, in that sense. But yeah, by the time I get to college, I'm anti-Christian, I'm very much into black nationalism, um, the, the, the pan-African movement, thinking blacks have to go back to Africa. Um, I was, I was uh, definitely of the school thinking that everything, I, had, I, I, had, I went to a predominantly black university, right? And, and so very prevalent there was the idea that uh, the whole victim mentality, which you may get into later, but uh, of thinking that everything that's bad happens to blacks in America is because of the white man and Christianity is the white man's religion. And so I was, man, I was all up into that. Now we look about the same age. This must be post Black Panthers on the on the campuses, right? Yeah, You're, so this is, early this is 90s. after that. Okay. Yeah, early nineties. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Um, but again, it's a predominantly black university, so still steeped in a lot of that in, in those movements. Yes. Yeah. So, um, so yeah. So, yeah, that's where I was for like 10 years. And so in, in Freemasonry. Um, so, yeah, you said I belong to predominantly black set, which is Prince Hall Freemasonry, but also did crossover to um, predominantly white set as well. Um, so, you know, I had dual membership in both at one time. And so that was 10 years of my life. And, Real quick, you know, let me ask you, why were Freemasons or why are Freemasons so respected in the African-American community? Oh, man, it, it, it's, it's difficult to tell. And I wrote, wrote this in my book, Inside Prince Hall, when I was a Freemason. Um, it, it's difficult to tell the history of blacks in this country without talking about the role that the Freemasons played in this development. You have to talk about Prince Hall Freemasonry even before you get to the black church. Or you can talk to them, talk about it conjointly together, because they sort of grow up together. Um, Great. Let's so- jump into that after your conversions. I think that's a huge topic for tonight. So I'm going to ask you to um, get into that in about ten minutes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so, uh, so, yeah. So you know, when you, so you're, an, I'm an agnostic. I'm, a, you know, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a, sometimes I'm a deist. Uh, Freemasonry is pretty much, when I say Freemasonry was my religion, I don't mean I, I would go to the laws of worship, but when I say Freemasonry was my personal religion, for me, it, it gave me structure, it gave me rules, it gave me a moral law. Um, so, but at the same time, I'm sort of making up my own rules as I go along. You know, you can do that when you don't have, when, you don't, when you're not grounded in the truth, yep. the person. Yep. Um, so I get to a point in my life where, you know, I'm starting making multiple bad decisions one after the other, right? And those decisions eventually catch up with me. And so this is 2003. Yeah, that'd be 2003, 2004. And I'm in the county jail, Father Dave, and I'm facing a lot of years for embezzlement, right? Uh, close to half a million dollars. And um, and I think my life is over. You know, first, you know, they tell me, oh, you gave you six months, smack one on your slap him on the wrist type of thing. But the people who I, um, the agency, government agency, who I, I stole the money from, it was it became political, and they want to you know lock them up and throw away the key. So there I am. And they're talking about nine years, and that seemed like a long time. So that was it. I, I called my family, my grandmother, my wife, 
um, several other people in my family and told them goodbye. No, see, they didn't know what I was doing, right? But I had in my head that I'm tapping out. I can't, this is because everything that I thought meant something to me, that made me me, that that gave me value in life, that gave me a reason to live. All that at that moment was gone. It was over. And so I had no reason to live because heaven and hell was still wasn't that wasn't something that was you know, tangible to me. And so so I tried to commit suicide. And so in, that, in the jail before he made it to prison. Yes. So, yeah, I, I put a bag around my head, a, a tightest sheet, a noose around my neck. And I tried to suffocate myself through asphyxiation by tightening up that bag around my, my neck. And so I'm in the process of doing that. But the second I have turn, I hear a voice. And this is an audible voice from the outside of me. And the voice says, I love you. I'm here. And what happened to me at that moment is what, what would happen to anybody? Who said that? <laughs> Where did that voice come from? But no one's around. And then I asked the question internally, right? Where did that come from? And the answer that comes back to me is Jesus, which is a ridiculous answer for me at that time, because Jesus is fiction. As a deputy for the Grand Lodge, for deputy or Grand Master, my job was to go into each lodge. You know, I was responsible for all the lodges in the west, on the west coast of Ohio, Western Ohio. And I used to enforce the rule in these Masonic lodges that everybody used to ignore because Freemasons, you know, tend to be Protestant and but the rule had been from the beginning that you can't end your prayers in Jesus' name. You can't sing, sing church songs. But no one enforced it. But I didn't like hearing the name Jesus. So as a, as a deputy, I used to go into these lodges and enforce that. I wouldn't let my daughters go to church because one day they came. You know, my wife at the time, you know, she was an agnostic as well. But we thought sending them to church would be they could learn some stuff in church. So we used to send them to church to learn good morals. And so, but one day, Father Dave, they came back from this Baptist church. I think it was Zinga Baptist Church or something like that. And they had, they, uh, my oldest daughter asked me, she said, Dad, are you going to go to hell? Um, and I said, no, why would you ask me that? And she said, well, we learned in, in Sunday school that only Christians go to heaven. That was the last day they went to that church. I was right? going to say, that's probably the last yeah. time they, they went <laughs> That was the last time. That was the last time. And um, so, yeah, that's so I was very anti-Christian, like I said. So when when I hear the voice, when the answer comes back to me, that that was Jesus who told me he loves me and he's there for me. It didn't make any sense. Um, that's not a made up story. Yeah. And and so I that's the first time I read the New Testament. One of my fraternity brothers he had gave me a Bible. I think it's a Bible I still have back here somewhere. Mm. Um, he gave me a Bible. Yes, this one right here. My fraternity brother came by. He gave me this Bible with my name on it. And, you know, I thought it was nice. It was, uh, you know. And when you say fraternity, you mean in college at your university? Or is that, yeah. Okay, that's awesome. not like a lodge term. Right, yeah. Um, yeah, he gave me this Bible. And, you know, I just put it, you know, I just put it up. Didn't really think much of it. But that, that night, I heard that voice, his voice. I picked up this Bible and I read the Gospels for the first time. Praise God. What a miracle. And I just knew just reading these stories that Jesus is real. Because you can't make this stuff up. And I was just blown away and upset that I had never taken the time to even read these stories about Jesus' life. And so I was converted. And by Praise default, God. I guess I became a Protestant, right? Yeah. 
But later on, you know, I started asking a question. Well, what happened to, you know, the churches in this Bible? Because I got to join the church. And I thought, well, maybe um, I, I joined the AME church, right? Because I kind of grew up in that church. But I started asking, what happened to the churches in the Bible? And eventually that led me to the Catholic church. So in 2006, so in 2005, I was baptized as a Protestant, named, and still in, in, in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. But then a year later was when... Um, that January 2006 is when I started. I went to Mass for the first time. It felt like it, it was amazing. I just knew I was in a sacred space. Um, I knew there was something different. Um, and so and for, a first, for a long time, I can remember the first homily that, that Father Toner has said there. And that's kind of what caught me. And then I started studying the Catholic Church and from just from a historical perspective. And I was convinced, you know, historically, then I started studying the theology because I didn't want to be a Catholic. Never heard of a black Catholic. Right. Um, and that was still important to me at that time. And but um, what were some of the books you started reading as far as the, the historicity of the Catholic Church? Just secular Britannica. Uh -huh. um, OK. In, in some there was another his, just basic history book, secular history book. But they both admitted that the Catholic Church can make the case that it goes back to the time of the apostles. Yeah. Yeah. I remember when I was a teenager and I got out the Encyclopedia Britannica in the basement of the library near my parents' place. And this is back when people actually used encyclopedias instead of Wikipedia. Right. And and I I went under Pope or Papacy or something, and it listed all the popes. Let's see, I was like a teenager, so it would have been Pope John Paul II, all the way back to Peter. And as you know, Encyclopedia Britannica is a British production, you know. Uh, so to see that in a formerly Catholic country written by probably agnostics, possibly Episcopalians, that was an interesting moment. I mean, I was already a Catholic, unlike you. But it's amazing to see secular writings trace the papacy back without break to the first century. Right. You know, I mean, that shows what scholarship is supposed to be like. Right. Yeah. I mean, if it's true, it's true. That's right. So, yeah, that, that's I was convinced about that. And but I was convinced about, you know. What were, the, what were your biggest hurdles? I didn't want to be Catholic. Didn't want to be a black <laughs> Catholic. That was my biggest hurdle. It was that to me. But um, but aside from that, it was it was the Holy Eucharist. Yeah, I think it was I didn't understand I didn't. I wanted to get into the minutia. I didn't understand. That. I didn't know how, when, we, how, how is this possible? And but once, but that was that was that was really the piece for me. Once I um, once I was able to, once I read a book by Joan Carroll called the Eucharistic Miracles. That that did it for me. That was a huge part of my conversion. Really? Was yeah, it the I same was. Book? It was, was um, it no, same mine was sorry. Mine was Bob and Penny Lord's book, but I was like, okay. I mean. I'll tell you my – I want to get back to you, but my real quick conversion story was I didn't believe in the Eucharist at this Jesuit high school because I'd never been taught Jesus was truly present. So I was um, – I remember once in grade school I dropped the Eucharist on the ground and looked around at my friends and laughed. God forgive me for that, but I just – you know, and the priest got mad at me later. I was like, why? It's just bread, you know, and in my defense I'd never been taught that. I couldn't understand why he was angry. I thought, what a jerk. I mean it's just a piece of bread. And then, you know, and then, in, and then, in, uh, and then in high school, you know, I had my Amnesty International tie dye. I was writing letters uh, for Amnesty International. I had dreaded my hair. I tried to 
I don't know if you remember Kid and Play. I thought I could get my hair like gray. Oh, yeah. Remember uh, that? But yeah. my my hair's my hair's not a black person's hair, so it just looked raggedy. And uh, <laughs> and so I. Uh, but my best friend's dad was an EWTN watching Taco Bell eating Korean war vet. And he'd come kind of down the stairs with his oxygen tank, real skinny guy. And he would kind of challenge me on things like, oh, you go into the, the Eucharist with this sin on your heart. Or you go into the Eucharist with that sin on your heart. And I'm like, who you tell me what to do, you know? And then he gave me Bob and Penny Lord's book of Eucharistic miracles. And I said, you mean this happens every mass? <laughs> And, and he goes, yeah. And like, even though, I, you know, one of the gifts God's given me is anytime I've heard the truth in my life, my conversion, at least intellectually, the will takes some time to catch up to it. But at least intellectually, I, I, I know the truth immediately. And I, it was an instantaneous conversion. I said, OK, now I see why I have to go to confession for sins X, Y and Z if this happens every mass. But that was the book that kind of switched me from like social justice warrior to EWTN Catholic. Then there was maybe another conversion 20 years later to tradition. But that's that's what brought me to middle of the road, at least, was that book by Bob and Penny Lord, Eucharistic Miracles. Wow. Yeah. God bless those books. Yeah. And, um, and, um, Didn't Jesus say in John chapter 12, unless you see miracles, you will not believe. So that's two miracles for you. One, the intervention as you were committing suicide, and two, the book of Eucharistic Miracles. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. At least two. Yeah, that was... Yeah, um, which is interesting, right? Um, yeah, God, you know, he'll he'll give to people what they need. Yeah, and I wish he would. I wish that voice I heard everyone could hear, but he knew what I needed, right? It was it wasn't I, you know for me it couldn't have been anything else, you know. It, for me that was that was exactly what I needed, right? And I, you know, it was it was an act of mercy on God. Right. Yeah, that's talk about un, unmerited. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I deserve death. I mean, I was. And you weren't even looking. I mean, when you were in that jail cell, you weren't even looking for God. Were you? No, no. I, I, I would say, you know, like I said, my, my, I, I had my fraternity brother and, you know, then the guy from the lodge, Marco, those two guys would come see me. And um, Marco, I remember like, right, right before this happened, though, for, now, granted, course i had a grandmother praying for me i'm sure i had That's people true. praying for me yep but the day before this i think marco had come to visit me and he asked me he said well i think you're ready to accept jesus i don't know where he got that from but you know how protestants tend to be very officious like that and that's fine <laughs> <laughs> and so it's all you know you know heck what do i have to lose and so you know so we he, we prayed and he ended a prayer in Jesus' name and eh, you know whatever. But it's what years afterwards, I you know I sort of connected that right, like hmm, interesting. And I can't tell you how many people I talk to have this unmerited conversion, and they always add, "But Grandma was praying for me." Right, right, right. I mean, I'm, but I know, and I'm, and I'm not mocking. I mean, if we can see in heaven, how many grandmothers' prayers <laughs> probably save people from hell? It's going to be extraordinary. <laughs> Because I'm not, I'm not saying people are making that up. I really believe it that someone's grandmother. It, it's it's amazing how many how many people have been brought back through grandma's prayers. Yeah, grandma, grandmothers have it together, right? Yeah, and they, well, and they know. I mean, they got the time to pray. I guess not always. My 
my mom's always taking care of her grandkids. I shouldn't say that, but yeah, I think they, uh, and you know, they've seen enough of life. They probably, many grandmas and grandpas have kind of diverted from the road themselves and they know who needs the most prayers by that point. So, uh, so, so then you read a book on Eucharistic miracles, a few other books, and when are you accepted into the Catholic church? On Feast of St. Dominic on um, August 8th, 2006. Yeah. Okay. I just named- Dominic to be my, my confirmation saying it, it was Joseph at the time. I was still married at the time. So, and I wanted to be a better husband. So I chose St. Joseph uh, for, my, for my confirmation. And my you patient. named your organization after St. Dominic, Dominic though, right? Yeah, I got, yeah, I got close to St. Dominic as the time went on. And I had some, some, you know, spiritual, some, you know, some, some weird things that didn't make sense. And, you know, it was going on in my life and it just it seemed to me, that the Saint uh, Dominic has has been present in my life, and so I've gotten closer with him over years, right? Because he keeps, you know, he seemed to be keep bugging me. So okay, we'll be friends. Let's let's find out what's going on with us. <laughs> Maybe you could explain what your attraction to him is, because I like, I love the Franciscans. I love the old school Jesuits. I like the Carmelites. I'm just getting into Benedictines, I guess, being a hermit, trying to live that rule a little bit more. But I've never been attracted to the Dominicans. What a what attracts you to them? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, Dominican spirituality is, is very important to me. Um, and uh, oh, great, a great book. I know people who are listening can't see it, but uh, if you're watching, great book that I, I've run through several, you know, at least twice a year. Dominican spirituality um, by William A. Hinchbush, a Dominican. Um, the principle is in practices, so. Um, so then the Dominican spirituality, you know, just has um, the four pillars, um, um, prayer, study, community life, and um, uh, prayer, study, community life. And I, there was another I can't seem to remember right now. Sure. But but the, the pursuit of truth mm-hmm. um, that Dominicans have, truth. Uh, because the truth is a person named Jesus Christ. So eventually, everything that every conversation that we, you and I would have, has to be grounded in a principle. And every conversation that we ha- we have and everything that we do has to lead to that to truth. Yeah, is who who is a person. So that that's that's central to Dominican spirituality. Uh, there was a saying attributed to Saint Dominic as, as well that's very important to me. Um, that everything that we sh- should do should be uh, ordered to love and truth, right? So if, if it's not ordered to those things, then it's not worth doing. So do that. So um, so that's the main convert is, you know, I, I've never joined a third order. Third order yeah. is really not my thing. I don't. Yeah. I, I looked into it one time. But I think there's a way to live your life just as a lay person, mm-hmm. uh, following the, the pillars of Dominican spirituality, um, that can be very beneficial and can lead, lead to sainthood. And, and St. Dominic, I'll tell you this quick story about St. Dominic. Uh, you go, you know the story about Do- his hounds, right? You know, St. Dominic, his hounds, the hounds of heaven. I mean, I know that Dominicane is yeah, right. the, the dogs right. of the Lord, and then I, he had a dream of them. I don't know it very well. Tell me. Right. Um, so, well, I, I'll, I'll, I'll give you, you know, my version happened to me because it's, 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 so, for the longest time, until I was baptized, you might not believe this, but it's true. Until until the day I was baptized, 
for years, I suppose decades, you know, at least since late teens, Father, I would have dreams of these two dogs chasing me. Nightmares is what they were. Nightmares. And there's always these two dogs. And it's like, it, it, was a, it wasn't like an everyday recurring dream, right? Sometimes it uh-huh. was every day, but most of the time, most years, you know, three or four times a year, these dogs chasing me. Nightmares. And until a day, no, not baptized, until the day I was confirmed to the Catholic Church. And it seemed like, looking back, the worst things I was doing in my life, the more these nightmares would occur. You know, the theft, the adultery, just, just doing bad things in my, in my life post before I was, came, came to Christ. Yeah. Um, but the day I was confirmed, that night I had a dream. And the same dogs that had been chasing me for decades of my life were now, I can still see it. They were, they were, they were seem to be on a leash, maybe on the chain, but they were under. There was still a a moat or whatever, but on the other side there seemed to be a little little island or something, and there was a tree, and I couldn't see the man's face, but he seemed to be cloaked and he seemed to be had a a, a robe, a cloak on only see his feet, but I could see the dogs, and the dogs were just calm, just looking at me. Just looking at me. They weren't chasing me this time, mm. just looking at me. And I didn't connect it at that moment, because I, I didn't know much about St. Dominic back then, other than right. you know, his, his, his feast day. But later on, getting close to him, and you know, having this conversation with, with, with other people, with my spiritual advisor at that time, people were telling me, oh, that was that was St. Dominic chasing you to the Catholic Church. So, so uh, it's, it was just one of those things. Amazing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> awesome. Praise God. I mean, what a beautiful conversion so far. And then when did you decide to kind of move from, I shouldn't say move, when did you decide to take your Catholicism public to start a YouTube channel and to speak out on these different topics? Oh, um, I guess in 2010. So I ended up not doing all the time in prison that they gave me, honestly. Um, you didn't have to do all that time? No, no I was I was very Catholic with it. I mean, I would pray novenas all the time. I would I would I would do I would I would implore so many saints, hey, I gotta get home to my kids, you know. And I did get out way earlier than anybody ever thought I would. People said, Oh, you're not getting out. And it was it was sort of a miracle intervention how how I did get out like six years early and I didn't end up doing like five and a half years. I did like half my time. Okay. Um, cool. So, so I got home and so when I get home, my daughters would tell me about something called, um, um, snap, no, what my face and Facebook, you know, all this <laughs> right. stuff. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. What was the predecessor to Facebook? Something like my, yeah, my face. Yeah. My space. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, so yeah, I just I don't know. I kind of got on it, seen what that was about, and um, and that kind of was my, my the first time you know my it's okay I can because I have written so many books on Freemasonry, right? So many articles, and so I knew I had a, a gift of writing, had spoke around the world about Freemasonry, so I was a well-known speaker on Freemasonry, well demanded, and I thought well maybe God can use my gifts of writing and speaking to proclaim His truth. Cool. And so I said, well, so I started YouTube. My first few videos were just on the 
Theology of the Body, and I started have writing, have written some books. And, you know, so I it just kind of, but I really didn't really take YouTube really serious until probably 2017 or 18 is when I started getting consistent with it. Yep. You know, but first I was really just blogging. I was blogging at, um, you know, different sites and stuff like that. So. I heard you say on one of your videos, you went from jail to making six figures, but somewhere in the middle, you were spinning signs on a uh, roadside. What, oh, uh, yeah. what, <laughs> what were you spinning signs for? Uh, yeah, so, uh, that's how, yeah. So I was, um, that's how I would do a Jiffy Lube or something like that in oil chain. So I had the oil chain sign. Now, were you one of those guys who you could tell just was doing it for the money or were you getting into it? No, I wasn't. I wasn't going. I was. I wasn't. No, I wasn't flipping it between my legs or anything. <laughs> That's. A, I never know if I'm supposed to wave to those people. Like, good, good job. Yeah, good effort. Yeah. Good you effort. Want a tip. <laughs> <laughs> Some of them really get into it. I enjoy it. Yeah. No. You didn't have to dress up like a chicken or anything, though, huh? I would have. I mean, for the right price. <laughs> I didn't have anything going on. I just try to make it a, a few bucks, get my life back, you know, in order. So. Yeah. Yeah. Praise God for uh, um, all the temporal and please God eternal blessings that you're describing there. And then uh, your wife became Catholic and your four daughters are in the church too, huh? Yep. So, yeah. So, yeah, my wife, I married when we got married. She's still a Protestant. She's a Baptist who says she's never going to become Catholic. So I fasted for her every 13th of the month. Wow. Eventually she came into the church and my daughter who came with her, Olivia, Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, she she's um she came into the church, and when we moved from Ohio to Illinois, that was really the catalyst. Because back in Ohio in Columbus, we were going to two different churches, and so okay. we moved here. Um, my wife was like, "Okay, this is done. We're not. I'm not going to find a church here. We're not going to be going to two different churches on Sunday. I'm going to become Catholic." And you know, praise God. And so she came to church, and Olivia came with her, and then my oldest daughters, like I said, their mother, you know, still an agnostic. So I was never able to get them in the, in the, in the church while they were living with her. Mm-hmm. Um, but then we would go to mass whenever I had them. But it's when they went to college is when I, w- I got them all in the RCA. Really? And That's a tough time to get people in RCA when they're in college. I, get, I gave them a sin to Father Dave. I don't know. You may, you may not agree with this, but um, while they were going taking RCA classes, uh-huh. I knew it would take time away from whatever they were doing. I said, well, let's treat it as a work study. And so I would pay them to go to classes. But I always said, you can't, you're not obligated to become a Catholic. I just want you to. Okay. I was going to, I was going to, I was about to put the brakes <laughs> on it, but that's a, it's like, it's, you can't, come on, David, you can't pay people to become, even, right, the, right, mid, right. even yeah. the middle ages, like Inquisition knew you couldn't do that. <laughs> but no, I like that you added it, but that you don't have to become Catholic. Because yeah. people will say to me, our kids won't go to confession. I say, well, you know what? Make it mandatory. You guys go on Saturday, and they can sit there. They don't have to go to confession. You can't force people to go to confession. Uh-huh. But I say, we're going as a family, and you can sit in the pews if you want. That's mm-hmm. my suggestion to people on that. Uh, <clears throat> but I like what you're saying. That's that's good. Here's an incentive for you to study. So you gave them instead of this, an incentive financial incentive to study not to become catholic yeah and i would always check in with them throughout the year yeah um like you know what are you learning i would even go to some classes with them but always make sure is, is it sure you want what you want to do you know so i'd always make sure so i knew incentive is is difficult you know because people do connect money with action 
Yeah. Uh, yes, I would, I would definitely always make sure. Even my daughter, my my uh, my twenty one year old, who she just she's in RCA now. She because she didn't she didn't get a chance to do it while she was in school because she switched schools so many times. Yeah, <laughs> so, that's awesome. But um, now she's that's in RCA. But even a tough even time to enter the church. God bless her. But even with her, even though I'm her her teacher, I always check yeah. in with her. You know, you don't. Yeah. It's still your choice. You know, so. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, obviously, the best conversions happen in freedom. Um, so let's let's talk a little bit about Freemasonry. Kind of back to my very first question: Why in the African American community is Freemasonry respected? And I guess the bigger historical issue is why did that grow up with the Episcopalian Church? Why did that give structure to the African American community? Why did Freemasonry grow up with the African American culture in this country and give it? structure society is that too strong a word at least community it gave it community what um what you said 30 minutes ago was a surprise to me so i don't even know the right question to ask yeah and you're i'm sure you're familiar with this a lot of your a lot of your listeners um is that in in the black in in, in the black american experience um if we can call it a culture Christianity, in particular, Protestant Christianity, is part of that culture, right? Um, from early as, as um, during slave times, it, it gave a lot of people in slavery, blacks who were slaves, it gave them reason to hope, right? It gave them reason to persevere, reason to believe that there was going to be a better day, and so Christ was that for for them. So, um, so it's already there. Christianity is already there, part of that 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 black American experience here. Okay. Um, now Prince Hall, individual named Prince Hall, he's in, in Bo- he's a free man. He's in Boston. He's a free black man in Boston. He's a abolitionist. He's an educator. He's somewhat, someone who we call today as a, uh, you know, uh, activist, right? Uh, what century are we talking? This is the late 1700s. Okay. Um, and so this is still before the revel, um, before 1776, right? Mm-hmm. And so while the British are still here, Prince Hall, for whatever reason, he wants to become a Freemason. Um, so he has some British influence. Probably he understands that Freemasonry is a British export, right? He understands that. Um, and so there's some attraction there. He tries to join a predominantly white lodge. Um, they reject him. So he, he goes to join an Irish lodge. It's Irish military were there in Boston. And so him and 14 others, they join that Irish lodge. They admit him. Later on, Prince Hall, he, he, he appeals to the Grand Lodge of England for what's called a warrant or a charter. Um, they give it to him. They, they know very much well he's, he's, a, he's a black man, that he's free. Um, they probably know very well that he isn't being accepted into to the white lodges, but they issue him a charter warrant to operate. So it's a legitimate in that sense. And, but Prince Hall, if you look at his early charges, Father Dave, what charges are things that, um, they'd be like lectures, what Freemason would call them lectures, but they're chartered, they're properly called charges. So he, he wrote two charges that are, are very well known amongst Freemasons. And in these charges, if you read them, what Prince Hall is doing is that he's, he's blending He's trying to blend Freemasonry with Christianity. He's trying mm-hmm. to show how Freemasonry can be used as um, a way to um, 
um, evangelize Christianity. So he's trying to show there's a relationship between the two. He's Protestant. And David, real quick, I think 90% of my listeners are the basics of Freemasons, but maybe for the 10% who don't, if you could define Freemasonry and Freemasons in maybe three sentences, what would you say? Oh, from from their perspective, Freemasonry is um, they they would call it a, a beautiful system of allegory. Um, they would call it a fraternity. They would they would call it um, Freemasonry is, is a tool to make a good man better. They would call they would make, they may say that it's a handmade of religion. But from a Catholic perspective, we, we would look at Freemasonry as a religion because it is it does have a God. It does have a moral law. It does have sacraments. They would call these degrees. They would call them degrees, but they're actually sacraments. They do have a way to compel people to obey the moral law. So it has all the components of religion. Who, would you, who, who is their god? It's a secreted god. They, they would call they call their god the grand architect of the universe, the grand architect of the universe. Um, so if um, Freemasons, if you're as long as you belong to a monotheistic religion, largely. You know, we get into the little different sets of Freemasonry, but sure. largely, um, if you belong if you belong to a monotheistic religion, uh, Christianity, um, Islam, Judaism, you become a Freemason, but you cannot bring your own um, deity. You can't bring you can't mention the name of your own deity in the lodge because Freemasonry, in its constitution from the Grand Lodge of England, from seventeen what twenty three, they wrote a constitution as organizations do. Now that constitution. They said masonry is um, it intends to be the center of union of all men by which all men can agree. Oh, it's like universal, which is the definition of Catholic. Right, right. I mean, it's the inverse, of course. I mean, I'm not promoting it as a good replacement of Catholicism, <laughs> but it's it sounds like it's an ape of Catholicism in a certain sense by yeah. by claiming by claiming to be universal. Yeah, exactly. Right. And they're, and they're trying to, you know, you know, we touched on that later, how they are actually, you know, trying to, they have tried to supplant Christian Catholicism throughout the, throughout the ages. But in, in their own constitution, they, they call Freemasonry the, the universal religion. Wow. And so Freemasons nowadays, they was, they would dispute that. They said, no, we're not religion. And they used to go, well, what about the, the, the first constitution? They said, well, that was the Grand Lodge of England. You know, that doesn't apply to us, but uh-huh. they, they cherry, they cherry pick. That and and really why fun. do you call the degrees sacraments? That's quite an outrageous claim. Mm-hmm. Um, they're sacraments because in 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 the Catholic in in, in the Masonic sense, because what, what they're doing, they're it, well. Let's think about sacraments as us, right? Sacraments are were instituted by by Christ, um, and the means by which Christ. Uh, continues to encounter his people. I think loosely what the Catechism definition is. Um, but um, their actions of the church through which Christ continues to meet and encounter his people. So through the sacraments, we receive grace. Yeah. Um, and, and, and through that grace, we um, are called to holiness, right? We were able to we're, we receive the, um, the helps and graces that we need to be who we're called to be. Now, let's look at Freemasonry. What, what are the degrees doing? And so... Which you receive with two degrees, they wouldn't call it grace because Freemasonry is humanism, as mm-hmm. as Pope Leo V said. But um, so, but in this in this degree system, you're receiving working tools, right? Um, the working tools, let's I don't know, uh, say a hammer, right? You receive the working tool of a hammer, 
And you're taught that, well, as a Freemason, you're taught to use this hammer to do thus and thus and thus. Um, but as a Freemason, you're taught, to use, you, you want, you're taught to use it for what they call more noble and glorious purpose, to take that same thing, the tool that operative Mason would use for thus, and now apply it to your life to do something um, um, spiritual, right? Mm. Let's look at something that, that they would actually say. Let's look at what they, they would say, the 20, the, it's called a 24-inch gauge. The operative Mason uses a gauge to lay and measure his work. But as a Freemason, you're taught to use it for a more noble and glorious purpose to take those 12, 24 parts of a gauge, divide them into three equal parts, each consisting of eight hours of the day. Eight hours you're supposed to use for rest, eight for labor. And Sorry, when you say when you say a number and a gauge, I'm an ex-paramedic. I think of different IVs. Uh, oh, IVs. okay. So we have, we have, measuring rod, measuring gauge. Measuring rod. Right. Okay, that's what a gauge is. <laughs> Yeah, 12 gauges, 18 gauges. Right, yeah, no, yeah, you're in the medical profession, yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah, so, um, so yeah, take, put it think, of any, think of any tool that an operative mason uses. Okay. Whatever, compass, square, um, anything. The, the, the Freemason, the name Freemason comes from two things. One, free stone masons, because that's the type of stone that Operative Masons Jews building cathedrals and monasteries and during that period of, of Europe. So Freestone Mason, also Freemason from Masons um, had the right to travel from job to job to find work. So they were free in okay. a guild sort of sense. So they traveled from one guild to another in a fine work. So they were free to travel as workmen. So so as, um, at a particular point in time when um, the guild system starts to no longer be needed in Europe. Um, the guild starts to initiate non-operative masons into the lodges. And there was in around 1717, it was it became more of a fraternity, more of a symbolic sort of system than an operative organization and a union, right, for labor. So it was these Freemasons, it was these group of men that started the first Grand Lodge in 1717. And they had a degree system already in place with the first, second, or third degree. And when were the first Freemasons founded? I, I would say in the, in a modern sense, it would be in 1717, because that's the first Grand Lodge system. Okay. And is it in their constitutions to destroy the Catholic Church? Not, not, not explicitly like that, no. But as we talked about in their constitution to replace uh, – to become the universal religion by which all men can agree. We okay. say implicitly, implicitly, right? We would say that is a plot to destroy the Catholic Church. Gotcha. And that's what Pope Clement saw in 1738. What did Pope he write? Clement, yeah, he wrote his encyclical in enmity, which in Latin it was um, on high warning, right? Mm -hmm. um, or enemy ship, if you could write. Right. And, and so he, in, in, in his encyclical, he, he saw four things that made Freemasonry uh, incompatible with Catholicism. And, and um, he forbid any Catholic from joining it under the pain of excommunication, not only joining it, but even associating with, even giving cooperation, even giving housing or shelter, any. Any means. Recently, we saw in in what is it, Grenada, 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 an island in, in the Caribbean, um, masons there 
one of the Grand Lodges there had one of their anniversary sessions in the Immaculate Conception Catholic Church in the cathedral in Grenada. And so 200, what, 300 years ago, they all would have been excommunicated. Sure. You, that was that was given material cooperation and housing to Freemasons. Absolutely. So, and what were those four things uh, Pope Clement wrote about? Do you remember any of them? Yeah, the, yeah, the two were political. Um, but the first, the first, the first, I'll get to them all. But the, the first two were just one: um, Freemasonry promotes indifferentism. The second is um, he called it um, um, probity. Um, and, and second, um, it was. Uh, so uh, indifferentism and probity that Freemasonry was offering to promote. Um, uh, it was competing against the Catholic Church and it was promoting indifferentism like there's no sort of I think he read Anderson's Constitution because he's seen that mm-hmm. but Freemasonry. They're 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 saying that there's not one true church. Right. There's all these different yes. religions that it can be one. Now, the other two reasons were uh, Freemasons meet in secret. And Freemasons are, and because they're meeting a secret, they're plotting. And what he saw there was Freemasonry is being used at that time as the export of England to promote parliamentary government, to deconstruct the monarchy system. Ah, interesting. Countries, right? So these Freemasons, it was an export. So Freemasons were able to meet a secret and plot, it again, plot against these monarchies to usher in representative government. Yes. And I think it's interesting you mentioned indifferentism because— I would say that's the most dangerous heresy that is functioning in the hierarchy of the Catholic Church right now. The heresy of indifferentism is that all religions are equal, all religions will get you to heaven. Um, it's it's essentially framed under ecumenism these days, but ecumenism in the first 1,000 years of Christianity meant only the patriarchs from all the churches. It means of the house. But that's amazing that you trace the heresy of indifferentism back to the 18th century. This isn't just something that started in the 1960s. This goes back to the 18th century that already there was a plot to get into the mind of Catholics this notion that all religions are equal, all religions will get you to heaven. Right, right, right. Amazing that goes back. And we see, unfortunately, we see how that has taken root in the minds of so much of the laity and the hierarchy of the Catholic Church today. Yeah. It's the number one most destructive heresy, I believe, in the year 2021 here. And Pope Leo, he would add to that. Um, so Clement would, Clement would say in 1738 that Freemasonry is an error, vice, and danger, and disturbance to the Catholic Church. Um, and he would say that it caters towards and relies upon established by indifferentism and has its own law. Um, then, like I said, the political things was that they meet in secret and they disturb the, the peace of well-being. So now Pope Leo... The fifth, um, he he would add to this list when when he becomes pope because he he's he's more intimately connected with Freemasonry. There, there's some evidence that um, as a youth he may have been initiated in in the first degree. Pope Leo the fifth or Pope Leo the thirteenth? Oh, I'm sorry, Pope Leo the thirteenth. I'm sorry. Thanks for correcting. Okay. Yes, yeah, sorry. Pope Leo, yeah, Pope Leo the thirteenth. What did Pope Leo the fifth do? Right. He would have <laughs> yeah. been a long time ago, yeah. <laughs> right, Pope Leo, yeah, 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 really. Uh, yeah, Pope Leo the thirteenth. Um, yeah, so he would add to this. So yes, yeah, so there's some, you know, see, he, uh, you know, so he he has some very intimate understandings of Freemasonry. If you read his encyclical, um, Humanum Genus, um, 
Oh, yeah. You, you, you tell. He, here's a guy that knows a lot about Freemasonry. So he, yes. he knows a whole lot about it. And he calls, so he adds to indifferentism and um, uh, to Pope, uh, Pope Clement's, um, uh, the tw- 12th um, uh, charge of indifferentism, he would add to a Freemasonry practices or preaches or um, is endued with the principle of humanism. Tell us about that. Right. So, and it's something that I think Clement the Twelfth would eventually get to, because you know, indifferentism and, and humanism, we're talking about you know one birth to another. So, That's humanism right. is is the idea that, um, you know, I think we talked about it before in Catholicism under we, we talked about it under Pelagianism, right? That you can achieve salvation just through human effort, right? That there's no need of grace. Mm-hmm. And that it relies upon just human effort. And, and then, again, this is the working tools, right? If I give you this 24-inch gauge, we're not talking about grace in this Masonic sacrament. We're mm-hmm. saying, I give you this this tool, and using this tool, you can make yourself a better person, right? And you can arrive at that destination that Freemasons would call it a destination beyond a grave, right? And so yeah. it, that's offering a path towards some sort of salvation. That's so, right. And, you know, so the pope who came after Leo XIII was Pope St. Pius X, and he was one who coined modernism. I think there's a lot of Catholics who, when they hear the heresy of modernism, they think, okay, modern things. But as I blog posted about and podcasted before, I believe the two most important aspects of modernism is, one, a theocentric religion is replaced with an anthropocentric religion. In other words, a God-placed God-centered religion of Catholicism is replaced with a man-centered religion. And then also grace is flattened into nature by the eradication of miracles in the Bible. If you look at the first person that Pope St. Pius X excommunicated, one of the first five, it was Father Loisy teaching at a French seminary. It wasn't about issues of the Sixth and Ninth Commandment that he was excommunicated. It wasn't about matters of liturgy he was excommunicated. He was matter he was excommunicated for doubting the miracles of the Bible. And so I like what you're saying on human connecting humanism to indifferentism, um, and then I'm going to add on to their modernism. But essentially, mm-hmm. all of this is making a man-centered Catholicism instead of a God-centered Catholicism. This was the plot from the 18th mm-hmm. century. It didn't have. It wasn't just we want people to have cell phones. Of course, they didn't have cell phones in the 18th century. It was to make a a God-centered <coughs> religion, man-centered. And then it starts to make sense as you look at the constitutions of the Freemasons, uh, why they have these degrees, why they have the humanism, and why indifferentism is the center of all of this. And it's not possible, I don't think, unless we go back to 1517 and we see the, 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 that blow against the Catholic Church coming from, you know, eventually from from Martin Luther and this idea of, of just your, eh, you can have your own truth, right? And then we see from that, we see the, the, the so-called age of enlightenment with, with people like, um, um, uh, his name starts with a V. Voltaire. Uh, Voltaire, people mm-hmm. like him. So, mm-hmm. yeah, and then so from 1517 to 1717, to 1917, we see the birth of communism. Yes. So it's this, this connection of you know every 200 years there's this, there's this interesting that's right thing that happens that's just 
a direct attack against the Catholic Church and the truth. Yeah, and it's interesting because even some of the people that I thought were, well, at least I was still toying in seminary with the thought that people like von Balthasar and the Nouvelle Theologie people were pretty orthodox. But it's really interesting because if you look at von Balthasar's Dare We Hope That All Men Be Saved, and even to the left of him, Karl Rahner, the anonymous Christian, essentially Karl Rahner's anonymous <laughs> Christian idea is that without baptism— without accepting Christ as Savior, everyone of goodwill is truly a Christian who's going to be saved. And this ties right back to what you said five minutes ago, Pelagianism, that all people of goodwill without grace are saved. Um, and that's one of these major errors of the Nouvelle Theologie group, that they've fully collapsed grace onto uh, nature. And And what's amazing is evangelicals know this is wrong. Evangelicals will be the first to admit there is no way to the Father except through Jesus. And this is what the Catholic Church has always held and still does, but so many Catholics' minds have been infiltrated by old-school paganism, which is the same as indifferentism, which is the same as modernism, which is the same as humanism, which is the same as collapsing grace onto nature, which essentially—sorry for a showstopper here—is Satanism. Because, <laughs> you know, um, if you if you talk to Satanists, what the, the number one goal they want people— to get to isn't to worship Satan, but to worship themselves. At least that's the that's the initial goal is to be man-centered instead of God-centered. So the the lines that were the the line we can connect through all of these dots can sound innocent as first at first just to have humanism. Who's against humans? We're all pro-humans. Why would anyone be against humanism? But when you make a religion that is human-centered and instead of God-centered, it's tantamount to Satanism. Mm, yeah, I like how you cut to the chase there. That was, yeah, I'm going to turn off my, my pod right here now and just go home. <laughs> Show's over. Yeah. But, you know, <laughs> and, you know, so the the <clears throat> the bishop who ordained me, I remember 20 years ago when I was just a paramedic, I went to a theology on tap he had at a bar, and he was he was uh, kind of my hero at the time, and someone asked him about Freemasons, and his answer was interesting. He certainly didn't encourage any Catholics to join them. But his answer was kind of, these are a group of tubby people who go to the bowling alley, pretty harmless type guys, you know? Um, and my understanding is kind of at the grassroots level, your, your basic person who enters the Freemasons, he's not in it to promote indifferentism in infiltrating the Catholic church. He might just be in it because it's a good group of guys to go bowling with. So how do you, how do you square that up with, the very severe warnings from Pope Leo the Thirteenth. I mean, who is right on this whole thing? Is this a is this a group of fat guys who like to bowl, or is this what Leo the Thirteenth says? Yeah, he, he he called it right. Um, you know, all, all this you know, because in, in in his um in his encyclical, um, Pope Leo Thirteenth, he's, he's talking about how Freemasonry they they present themselves as doing philanthropic work, right? And in and um even attracting women in, into these in, into this ploy, uh, it's it's a ploy. Um, yes, I think most people who join Freemasonry, at least in the United States, do join it for a fraternity. They may know a friend, may, may be their father. Um, they're attracted to the banquets, maybe the maybe the tuxedos, maybe the little. Motorcycles and the, uh, the Shriners, maybe Shriners <laughs> Hospital, right? right? So, you know, so, but beyond the veil, what's going on? What's the teaching? 
And so what, what, I, what I found, you know, during my, my time as a Freemason and traveling, you know, different parts of the world, being in, uh, engaging with Freemasons, was that, yes, the vast majority of Freemasons are there for the fraternity and for the brotherhood, for the beer, for the drinks, right? But the longer that the person is exposed to the Masonic teaching through his degrees, what I call sacraments, the more <laughs> similar, the more a Catholic is exposed to the sacraments, the more it changes them. The more you're exposed to these demonic sacraments, the more it changes you. So I've, I've seen the people who make Freemasonry in their life really engage in it. Over time, they just become lifeless, it seems, right? They, you can tell something is missing, right? And, and that's the sad part, is that they think they're join, joining something that's benign, something maybe like the Lions Club or the Elks or Optimists or the Rotary Clubs, where, yeah, they're going to raise some money, maybe have a fish fry, maybe give a scholarship to some kid who needs a scholarship, right? There's that civic part of Freemasonry, sure. The first meeting of the Freemasons every month for most Masons is just a general meeting where they pay bills. <laughs> yeah. Right? But the second meeting of that month is the ritual work, is the degree work. And more and more exposure to that does have an effect on you. Lifeless is an interesting term. But don't you think excommunication seems a little harsh? What would you say to someone who says, yeah, I'm a Catholic and I'm a Freemason, but my pastor said I'm not excommunicated anymore. We're just doing fish fries and scholarships for kids. Yeah, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't say excommunication is harsh. I, you know, I've, you know, I'm sure you agree that excommunication is you know, medicine. You know, it's, yes. It's, 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 it's a tool to bring you back to the church, not to keep you out, right? So, um, and so it's, it's needed. But man, you know, the Freemasons who contact me, and I have some good stories of people who, you know, did watch my videos or did read my book, and they're like, you know, I, I understand, you know, in my wife and I, you know, we're leaving Freemasonry, you know, she's leaving Eastern Star. So, you know, I've heard some good stories, but for the vast majority of people who I talk to, they're just in complete denial. Yes, they do bring up what their priest said. Or, you know, what, or what, you know, they cherry pick. Oh, well, I heard this bishop say this. Or, yep. or I know this cardinal, he's in the Catholic Church and he is a Freemason. You know, they, it's, but it's hard, right? I mean, Freemason, I, mean, I, I would tell you what, Father Day, if I was still a Protestant, I would still be a Freemason. I mean, there's nothing in the Bible that explicitly tells me, you know, not to be a Freemason. That is not sure. explicit in there. And if I was in, you know, so I understand that part for Protestants and I understand for Catholics who have made Freemasonry their life and they got their little titles, their degrees, right? Right. They're maybe somebody important in, in the lodge. Um, they go there, everyone knows them. It's like cheers. They're like Norm. Everybody <laughs> walk in, everybody knows their name. I get it. I get family. I get friendships. I understand how, how hard things to walk away from. But if you're listening to this during a season of Lent, and the call to Lent is to give up anything that you place before God, in this context that you place before the dogma of the church, which we, we believe is true because it's been, it's been revealed by God. And we can argue that as, as many popes have said this same thing throughout the centuries for the last 300 years, that this, even though it's never been said 
arguably it's never been said ex cathedra, right? It's never mm-hmm. been said that, but it's arguably it's been repeated down through the centuries ad nauseum. So that's yeah, it's ordinary magisterium then. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so that's the that's the voice of the church. And so if you're putting your voice, your reason, your logic above Christ and His church, then that's something that we need to re, re, need revisit during this season of Lent when we should be examining our conscience and those things that we are placing before God. If you're putting Freemasonry before God, before your salvation, um, that's that's something we really need to think about. But what would you do if a Catholic called you and said, no, 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 Freemasonry has not replaced God. Freemasonry has not replaced Catholicism. It's just something I do on Saturdays. Why do you say it's a danger to my salvation? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I definitely would appreciate that question. I mean, if you're so you're a Freemason, you, you participate in a civic activity— um, well, one, I would say you, there's nothing you're doing in Freemasonry that you can't do outside of Freemasonry. You know, you can do a fish fry with the Catholic Church. First of all, you can do that with the Knights of Columbus, have some pancakes on Sunday. Secondly, you belong to an organization, and you know very well as a Freemason that you know that you cannot rightfully speak the name of Jesus in a lodge. You can't, you're not supposed to in prayers in his name. You're not supposed to do anything that promotes Christ. So why would you belong to an organization that that persecutes Christ in that sense? Why would you belong to an organization where you can't say the name of Jesus in the lodge? That seems like that just naturally be an unhealthy place. And well, if you may respond, right, um, that well, we 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 can't we don't do that because you know we have people of different religions in there, um, and so we don't want to offend anyone. And and so well, I would I would respond to that and saying well. So you don't want to you don't want to offend anyone by saying Jesus' name. Interesting. <laughs> That's very interesting. That's very interesting. So you don't want to say Jesus' name because you don't want to offend anyone. Again, so you have to examine the place where you're at. Yeah. You have to the place where Christ is being persecuted. But the one thing I would say, you know, I really try not to argue with Freemasons about Freemasonry, right? And I think that's one mistake that a lot of Catholics make because we want to talk about we want to talk about the ritual, you know. You know, I think there's been some decent books put out um, by um, by um, I think his name was Salza. He put out a good book. Some other Catholics put out some some decent books, but they always I think one weakness of those books is that they always focus too much on conspiracies and too much on the ritual. Right? I think that's it's 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 okay to know that stuff. It's, it's interesting. But ultimately, that if we try to convince a Freemason that they can't leave Freemason, that they should leave Freemasonry because of the ritual, they always have wiggle room out of that, right? They they always say, well, in my grand lodge, that's not the exact ritual, it's something different, or I don't really believe those conspiracies, right? So the thing I really try to focus on, on Father Dave, is just the authority of the church. And I try to come up from a parental sort of sense, like dad says so, like mom says so, and this is why she says it. And and I, and I by focusing on the authority of the church, um, I'm able to come at it from a, from that position of authority, right? And and like like you know, and I think you we talked about this before, is that it, it's hard to use that argument for Protestants, right? But with Protestants, you know. You know, there's a different way we have to come at it. But with Catholics, I focus on the authority of the church. You know, the Pope Clement the 13th, um, 
uh, Clement the 12th and, and Leo the 13th really focus on the things they said is why you can't be a Catholic and a Freemason. No yep. more. You could be a Catholic and a Muslim or a Catholic and a, and a Mormon. Right? Yeah. And, you know, I think as we jump into Black Lives Matter, maybe feel free to connect Marxism, communism, Black Lives Matter, Freemasonry. I know these are all things that make liberals just kind of roll their eyes, but you've had the experience um, as a black man who went to a university that was, that was relatively anti-white, you were very high in the Freemasons. How high did you make into the into the Freemasons? Yeah, I was what they call a district deputy, um, which was a representative of the grandmaster for a region. So it would be the, the second highest appointed office, the second highest appointed office in a Grand Lodge, in the district deputy at a grandmaster. So just to recap who we're with, we're with the David L. Gray tonight. My name is Father David Nix. This is the Padre Peregrino podcast, and this is called Freemasonry and Black Lives Matter. We're going to shift a little bit more to Black Lives Matter. I realize very well I'm about seven months late on this podcast. Now, I think it's kind of interesting since Biden stole the election that we haven't heard anything of Black Lives Matter. That should tell you something right there. But that's not going to pre prevent people from drumming it up again. Um, now, before we get into that, of course, David and I both agree that racism is real and racism is a sin. But I was listening to one of your talks and you said something I found really interesting. You said that the most interesting thing about a black man is not his overcoming racism. <laughs> that's that's a pretty uh, that's a pretty bold statement in the face of 2020 and 2021. Can you tell us what you meant by that? The most interesting thing about a black man is not his overcoming racism. And just just for my naysayers who like to write my diocese, him and I, we both agree racism is real. We both agree racism is a sin. So anyone trying to trip me up, you're not going to trip us up on that. But we are going to expose. <laughs> we're going to expose what BLM's really about tonight. So Do you really, you really have haters. You have people who who, who uh, send letters and emails about you. You're a great yeah, guy. Yeah. Well, yeah. There's there's a there's an LC priest on the East Coast who tries to dox me and puts up uh, who who needs to be written. But you know what oh, people have been mad about isn't actually doctrinal. Really, what's behind all the hate mail that's been sent to my diocese, and by the way, my diocese did ask me to say, I, I mean, I'm a priest in good standing, but my controversial takes are mine, not that of the Archdiocese of Denver, so I'll put that out there um, in, in obedience to their request. Uh, but what's interesting is the hate mail that's been forwarded to me, the hate emails, it's actually all about the vaccine for COVID. People are mad that I speak out against the COVID vaccine. If you really scratch beneath the surface— what the uh, the only truth behind the anger that's there is the vaccine, which we're not going to discuss tonight. But I just want people to uh, um, know what they should criticize me for. <laughs> and, and they're free to. People can write all the letters they want for tonight um, because we are going to take on Black Lives Matter and Marxism and Freemasonry in the church. And people can write all the letters they want. Just you got to quote me the right way. That's all. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's it. That's it. I remember um, it's this ongoing quote with, um, you know, the liberal black Catholics that keep saying that I said that people who um, support Black Lives Matter should be excommunicated. That's they, 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 I made a video saying something like that. But like, like you, if you're going to quote me, quote what I said. I said yeah. that Black Lives Matter is a communist organization. And I said, arguably. Um, and it's been a church teaching since 1917, 
that you cannot be a communist. So therefore, if Black Lives Matter is a communist organization, yes, you're excommunicated. That's church teaching. That's um, good. So, yeah, and that's what we have to prove tonight. Um, probably, again, most listeners, people who've made it an hour into this video or podcast already agree with us. But we're going to give some new information, I think, tonight why that's the case. You know, the other thing you said in one of your videos, you mentioned your grandma said to you as a kid, you know, anywhere in life, you as a black child have to work twice as hard to get there as a white child. And I've heard other black grandmothers say that or people claim their, their grandmothers say that. I actually like that quite a bit. Um, you sounded like you disagreed with her a little bit. Um, but I think what you and I and your grandma would all agree on is that the African-American community had something very different to overcome 100 years ago as they do now. Mm. What do you think that is at this point? Yeah, I, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that. Um, I, I completely missed your first question, but it's sort of tied in. Oh, we can. Let's rewind to the first yeah. question. Yeah, it was. You, you said that the most interesting thing about a black yeah, yeah. man is not his overcoming racism. Yeah, yeah, and I'll tie that in. Yeah, so the the argument from I think a lot of race baiters, um, your your Black Lives Matter movement, um, from I think from a, a, a lot of people in the Democratic Party, but want to argue that the most important thing to know about Black people is that they're Black and that, um, it, it, you know, I you know I think there's a lot of interesting things about me that's more interesting. Um, you know, I've dated three celebrities. Um, I think that's very interesting about me. Um, I played a trumpet. Um, I'm really good at chess, right? Um, I mean, really good. At one point in my life, I was over an average an average score in competitive chess at 2,200. So I was really good. I think those are really interesting things to know about me. Um, the least interesting thing to know about me is just the color of my skin because it, it's not who I am. I didn't have a, a choice in that, and it doesn't define me, right? I think there are a lot of people who like to say, oh, your, your color the skin color defines you. It's the first thing, the most important thing to know about you. But I don't think it is. I think the fact that I'm Catholic is the most important thing to know about me because it's the only thing that really matters because it's the only thing that can extend uh, my life beyond the grave into heaven. Whether I'm black or any color doesn't affect my salvation. But the message from Black Lives Matter is that your color does have some sort of salvific value, right? That 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 it, that, it, that your skin color matters so much that it has to affect and define every aspect of your life. That you have to be black first and everything else second. And so that that's definitely what, what I push back against is that I, I don't I don't think that um, that black skin or skin color or DNA or amount of your melanin matters that much. Yes, I think I think racism, as as Father Dave says, you said. Racism is real. And as the Catholic Church teaches, it is a sin. And it's a sin because it's associated with pride, because it's one person um, treating harming another person simply because of the color of their skin or because their race or because their culture. And that that is sin, right? You, you can't, that's, that's, that's pointing to superiority. And it's opposite of what Catholic Church teaches about solidarity, that we're all made in the image and likeness of God. And that our lives matter because God loves us and Christ died for us. And so that's why life matters. That's why life's sacred, not because the, the color of our skin, but because God loves us and Christ died for us. And he wants us all to come to the knowledge of that truth. And so 
so and that sort of ties in with my with my grandmother and why I would push back against you know what she said you know one thing that she always told me was and it's different than what you know my my father and my my stepfather told me were they um embedded in me through practice was that my grandmother always told me that you know if you you want to be something in life david or brock as she called me you know you have to be um twice as good as the white guy because when society if you guys are competing equally you both show up equally um he's going to get the job over you he's going to get the nod over you just because he's white and so she's like you got to be you got to be twice as good whether it was i was running track i had to be twice as good right or in, in jobs or whatever I, th I think there's an aspect to that that i think is true in a sense that in every country even on a micro level in organizations, but let's just say every country, there is a majority. The majority isn't always the race. The majority is the people who are in power, right? And I think the people who have the power, some oftentimes we find out through history, those people get the advantage. There's something called majority advantage. In, in countries in Africa, right, there's people, or maybe in, in some areas, there's tribes where they have the power, they have the majority. There's industries, Hollywood, um, there's corporations, Google. It's, it's a lot of times who you know, people who graduate from Ohio State, if a person um, in Columbus, you graduate from Ohio State, so you have a good opportunity to land a job more than a person who graduated from some unknown university, right? There's sort of a majority advantage on, on a large scale, macro, on a, on a smaller scale, okay? That's not racism, right? That's just a majority advantage. It can be wrong. It can be harmful. But it's not racism. Um, it can be prejudice. And we have this thing between racism and prejudice. One interesting thing, though, about, you know, a lot of people, you know, the whole Black Lives Matter crowd, they, they want to connect. They want to say black people have it bad, right, because of slavery, right? How many 400 years ago? Because of slavery, um, Black people have a bad, right? Not 400 years ago, right? That's when that was, you know. Yeah, maybe was, two, 250 years ago. But because yeah. of slavery, we, we still have it bad. That somehow something in that ended um, on, on paper in 1865 somehow still affects me in 2021. And so, uh, but the interesting thing about racism, about slavery and racism, is that, you know, slavery wasn't initially connected to racism at all. If you look at it, people enslaved people who were closer to them. Um, and oftentimes it's people of the same color, right? That wasn't racism. We never thought it was racism. It was what people thought was normal. And, um, you know, from, from war or from for debt or for whatever, people, it was, slavery was very, was what people did. They thought it was normal. The thing that, the thing that happens in the United States, though, with the transatlantic slave trade was that the transatlantic slave trade was probably the, the first time in history where slavery became connected to capital, became connected to a capital venture. So slavery became a profit center. And so you had people going to a particular part of the country, kidnapping people and taking them to another part of the country for the, for the purpose of profit, but still not racism. It, it's bad, it's evil, um, it's it capitalism at its worst, but it was not, it's still not racism at that point. And we can argue that throughout everywhere outside the United States, it may not be racism, 
Because you look at slavery in the islands or in South America, slaves were very free. They had the ability to sell products. They, they were able to go to the marketplace. Because outside the United States, slavery, slaves were not controlled in that sense um, as they were in the United States. The United States was the only place in the country, in the world, where the, the, the idea was that to make slavery work here, you had to make slaves dependent upon the master. So the master was a source of food, shelter, clothing. Only place in the world where that happened to be. Still not slave, still not racism. Bad, um, evil, but not racism. It becomes racism in this country when um, we begin to struggle with the idea that we saw in our Declaration of Independence that all people are created equal and um, had inalienable rights. And the question began being asked very early on, well, what about these Africans and their descendants? Are they not created like us? Do they not have the same inalienable rights? So then a system begins to be put in place whereby um, we begin to justify slavery through the Bible. Uh, we start calling Africans in their sins the children of Ham, right? So they should be subjugated. We start saying, we start using arguments very similar to the ones that we use with abortion today. We start saying that oh, Africans are not fully human. They're just one fourth. Uh, we start calling them property, right? My slave, my choice. The government can't take my slave away from me. So we start to see these, all these arguments to dehumanize a human person. And that leads to prejudice, and that prejudice leads to slavery. I mean, lead, leads to racism. So racism was not the initial motive or initial output or initial product of, of slavery. Racism was a byproduct of dehumanizing the person. And, and so and it's very interesting that that system that was created, a system of dependency um, of slaves dependent upon their master is very similar to what we see today with um, the, 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 the system of the welfare system, where um, the idea is that you, you create a group of people who relies upon the government for food, housing, and shelter. And so what really is Black Lives Matter fighting against, right? They want to say, well, it's, um, they want to talk about systematic, systematic racism. And I argue that, yeah, the abortion holocaust against Black Americans, over 33% of black, Amer black babies die from abortion, is, 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 is I think, an example of systematic racism. We talked about Margaret Sanger, her reason for creating that, that, that holocaust against Black Americans. That's an example. But if you really want to fight against systematic racism, well, you have to fight against the system to keep people dependent upon master for food, housing, and shelter, because inevitably that dehumanizes the human person. It's excellent. I got three thoughts on that just to kind of add on to what you said. I was watching a video today. It was a debate between Candace Owens and one of the chairmen for Black Lives Matter. And she said a stat I'd never heard. I'm sure she could footnote it. People can go Google this. But she said in the 1950s, 
black families were on an economic boom greater than white families. And the only thing that stopped that was LBJ's great society in the 1960s that, in her words, married the African-American community to the government, to the Democratic government. So that was that's a really interesting fact. I mean, you mentioned like how many people will will um, put the plight of blacks on slavery. I think I I'm actually in that category more than you. But hearing people like Candace Owens say that they were um, that the, the African-American community was thriving in the 50s, at least on an upward scale, more than whites were at the point doesn't mean they were at the point of whites, but at least the exponential growth, whatever calculus, the derivative was greater than whites were until LBJ's great society that, again, married the black community to the government. Um, and then that is tied to abortion. Um, you know, I was I did some stats to prepare tonight, and this is from Wall Street Journal. This isn't even from like some <coughs> pro-life website. I'm going to read you guys from Wall Street Journal. According to a city health department reported in May between the years of 2012 and 2016, black mothers in New York City terminated 136,426 pregnancies and gave birth to 118,127 babies. So look at that. Can you imagine, can you imagine, David, if history looked back at a city in the United States, say at the time of the transatlantic slave trade, maybe we'll say just a random city like Atlanta. Can you imagine the national shame if Atlanta in the first half of the 19th century had lynched 136,426 black people in just four years, the national shame would be paralyzing at that. 136,426 cold-blooded murders in four years, four years, right? I watched one of your videos and, you know, you mentioned that the United States, because we were based in this morality of believing that all lives are equal, it's out of that that hypocrisy took over that we had to start saying blacks were a quarter human. And I, I think that's exactly the same thing that fires our abortion debate is – in fact, you made this point. I'm just stealing your point. Um, because we believe that every person has a right to live their life, the unalienable rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness – well, the only way to say unborn babies or black slaves don't have the right to life is you have to deny the premise that they're actually alive. And in a country founded on Protestantism like this one, it has to be founded on the hypocrisy of just denying that premise that they're alive. And this is why we see this same thing on the anti-abolitionists, what they argued about 170 years ago, that we hear from the mouths of the pro-abortion people, they're not human. They're not alive. Yeah, man, that, that, was, that makes me just so upset just to hear you say that. Um, I mean, it's, 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 I mean, it's, it's, I just hope 50, 100 years from now, I just hope that generation of people just look back in disgust at this generation. It's like, what were you thinking? I hope they call it a Holocaust. It's a Holocaust. I hope they I hope they I hope they they call it that. You're just wasting human life, just destroying human life. And I love the point that you you brought up about it. Um, you know, Kenneth Owens was talking about the whole LGBT LG, LBJ, um, great society. Um, a lot of people don't know, you know, that which which you said. They also don't know that 
Um, you know, the whole welfare state, which was intended to help blacks, has done nothing but harm them. I, I, I would point to three things. I think one, the, the welfare state, right? You know, there there, there was points during the, the four, from the 30s after after the Great um, Recession up until um, the 60s. There, there are certain points in history in America where did you know there are more at, at, in different years there are more black men employed than white men. Um, at certain points, particular times, um, there were, um, as far as black families being a husband and a wife, um, that some particular times that the married black family had more wealth um, than uh, some white families, you know, per capita. You know. Yeah, I heard you say that on one of your recent videos. And, and so, but you know, along along with the great society, there, there's some other things that really harm everything that's supposed to help seem to harm. One, unions, right? Um, um, unions were one of those things that pushed a lot of Black Americans out of the workforce. And a lot of people don't want to admit that because unions were supposed to be our friend, um, but unions created a network that was able to keep that was able to protect jobs for some people and not allow blacks in. Another thing was um, the minimum wage. You know, I'm personally for the minimum wage. I get it, but it's the, it's the, it's the fact of the case that the creation of a minimum wage pushed a lot of black people out of jobs because of natural reasons, because um, when there wasn't a minimum wage, you could pay blacks less, all right? But because you were able to pay blacks less than whites, more blacks were employed in a lot of industries. So a lot of things were supposed to help black Americans always ended up um, hurting. Another thing about the black American in, in the United States is that I think one thing that I will say about slavery, the one thing I will say, okay, maybe this is a residual from slavery. It's the fact that Black Americans, we don't have culture. We like to say there's a black culture. Oftentimes it's Cardi B saying something ridiculous, right? Or, you know, it's the most it's the most ridiculous thing, right? It's knowing all the episodes of good times. Or, you know, we talk about this idea of a black culture, but it's, it's, it's really a black pop culture. It's mm. not truly a black, black culture in a sense that we see with other people. The white, so black Americans do not have a true culture in the sense that we think of culture. And because we do not have culture, that that because of slavery, because slavery was a kidnapping with people from one place to another, mainly young people who didn't bring with them the traditions and everything like that. And so they didn't bring culture with them. So coming out of slavery, we, what was created was a whole new people. And it's a people without a true culture because culture takes time to develop. Think about the Jews throughout since the medieval times in many parts of the world. Jews were known for what? They were known for 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 producing what? And they always had garment industries. They were people who were known for producing garments throughout the world. That that's part. That's one part. Of, that's the example of culture. Germans. Germans were always known for pianos, producing pianos in different parts of the world. So culture migrated. Think about the Japanese before World War II. They all came from the Southern District in in China, and they came to the United States. They had a particular culture in this country, different than the Chinese that came after World War II, who were mainly poor, and they, a lot of them housed together and things like that to, to start the process. 
But all these different people who came here, these immigrants, always brought with them culture. And because they had a culture, a way of doing things, a, a way of believing, a way of acting, an ethos, a community ethos, and they would help one another. Think of the Irish helping one another in their communities or the Germans and helping one another in communities. All immigrants, they had culture. Even the first immigrant friends that landed on Plymouth Mount from, you know, the, the, the people from England, they brought with them culture. So black Americans are the only people who came to this country because they weren't immigrants in the true sense. They were kidnapped. Most of them were kidnapped and brought here. They did not bring with them a culture. And we've never had a true culture because we never, never, never had a true culture. We never been able to build a true community. And because we never had a true community, we've always had a disunity. And we don't help one another. We don't rely on one another. We don't build one another up. Throw into that these different things, the unions, the, the minimum wage, the welfare state, the, the epidemic after after um, integration became a thing, a lot of the affluent black Americans moved out of these black neighborhoods and insert and what happened in that in those black neighborhoods after the affluent class left, then came in crack cocaine um, and the younger generation of people. It was, it was it's just been one mess after the other. And and uh, and so it's, it, now for instance, abortion. And so it's just been one tragedy after another. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't say, you know, so, so I wouldn't say, I wouldn't say that this, the pain black Americans victims, I reject the victim mentality, right? But the lack of community means that what you have so many blacks achieving so many things in the United States, what you see from, you know, a guy who became president, <laughs> right? Um, although he's an immigrant in a sense, well, his, his father was, but, um, so you have so many different ach- achievements of individual black Americans. Mm-hmm individuals on an individual basis, not a culture or community producing them as we see with other cultures. Yeah. I worked with Focus 20 years ago. I was sent to Alabama and I was really surprised to see the African-American immigrants did not want to hang out with the blacks in the South. They wanted to integrate into the Catholic community, into the campus ministry. And they were, you know, I'm sure you know Africans from Africa, but it's a it's a very um, refined call, almost like how you'd expect British to behave in the 19th century. It's a very refined culture, and they were disgusted at the African-American culture of just rap and sleeping around, everything that they found in the South. They wanted to hang out, and they didn't want to hang out with the white Catholics because they were white Catholics. It, they wanted to hang out because, like you said, just because they were Catholic, right? Mm-hmm. And they, they had nothing in common with the black culture of the South, but they had everything in common with Catholics. Um, and, you know, that's what Black Lives Matter is trying to do. It's, it's fabricating a false union based on white guilt and black, I don't know, but I do want to talk about the communism there because, you know, Dinesh D'Souza has an interesting, I think it was in Trump card, and he talks about, if you were to stand up in front of a university and say, let's try communism again, let's try socialism again, people would say, oh, yeah, that's that's good. Like, let's try that out. If you were to stand up in front of a university in the United States and say, you know, Nazism just didn't get it right the first time. We got to try Nazism again. 
Dinesh D'Souza said, you're going to get taken out of there in a straitjacket, you know? And, and here's the thing is, I think we need to start treating people who are saying, let's try socialism, let's try Marxism again. We need to start, uh, it's hard to say this with Christian charity, because we want to keep Christian charity at the front of our tongue, at the front of our face, in the front of our heart. But like, what if we started shaming people who were pro-communism, pro-Marxism, pro-socialism, the same way we would someone who was a neo-Nazi? Because here's the thing, I've done the math. The Holocaust killed between 60, or sorry, the Holocaust killed between 6 and 11 million Jews in the camp, more if you conclude the whole war. But at least in the concentration camp, 6 to 11 million Jews. Communism in the 20th century, if you total what all the countries did to their own people, and this does include forced famines and stuff, comes to between 100 and 150 million people. That means communism has killed 14 times more people than Nazis. So when someone comes up to us and says, like AOC says, she, we have to try democratic socialism or whatever, we need to have the boldness to start shaming those people the same way we would someone saying, I want to be a neo-Nazi. Don't even, don't even spend time in front of me if you want to be a neo-Nazi, right? Well, this is our segue into this, that what is Marxism's number one goal? It's to disintegrate, well, one of their top five goals is to disintegrate the family and religion and then replace the state into the family unit and into one's religion. Well, six months ago, we all learned Black Lives Matter is against the traditional family. I want to quote something you said on one of your other videos, quote, the sooner black men return to their rightful role of leading as husbands and fathers, the sooner young boys will find determination to follow in their father's footsteps. So that word determination, I think that's that's one of those points where you and your grandma would agree with each other, though. But let's talk about this. Um, we have to prove to the listeners Black Lives Matter is actually Marxist. Well, here's the proof. Marxism wants to disintegrate the traditional family. Black Lives Matter had it on their website. I think they took it down because they were getting too much flack for it, um, that they're against the traditional family. And what is the number one most important thing in the African-American community? Is it more handouts? Is it more welfare? No, it's the father of the families. I'm going to quote you again. The sooner black men return to their rightful role of leading as husbands and fathers, the sooner young boys will find determination to follow in their father's footsteps. So can you tie that together, Marxism, Black Lives Matter, traditional family, and what the inner cities in this country need? Yeah. Um, it's, you know, it's, 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 it's parallel to, you know, I guess, a lot of what you see in the Catholic Church as well. I mean, if you want to destroy the Catholic Church, attack the Father. <laughs> uh, That's right. And, and so wow. it's, it's, it's the same with you know, what we see going on in society. The attack against the black man, the black father, is is, is long. Uh, I think we see we're seeing more and more. Probably the last ten years, a, a, a very strong attack even on on the white man, on the white father. So, but in in, in the in the in the black communities, um, you see the attack in, in a few different facets that that's represented by what Black Lives Matter believes in. Black Lives Matter, their organization, they're heavy on the LGBT idea the homosexualization, um, homosexualizing um, community, making um, 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 sexual depravity norm, um, the idea of there being two mothers and two fathers. This idea of normalcy is an attack on the black community, but for a very long time, um, 
that's one way the the homosex homosexualization of the black man has been an ongoing effort by Hollywood to make homosexualization of, of um, of, of black men normal. And this is why places like where you see a, a serious um, concentrations of, of black Americans in places like Atlanta, very recently, I think it's like 2017, the HIV level there was like a third world level. Mm. And so, so very, very, so that, 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 that attack, um, homosexualizing the black man is, is something that we see in Hollywood and that's being promoted by Black Lives Matter. Also, the the welfare state, um, you know, in, in the 70s and 80s, there was an incentive for black women to have multiple children without getting married, because the more children you had without being married, the more money and welfare benefits you got from the government. So there was an incentive for people, for the father not to be in the home. It's sad. I mean, you talk about, yeah, people should have self-control and not get, get married. But again, we were talking about early about my daughters and giving them money for, you know, going to RCA class. Yeah. It's, that's a dangerous, that's dangerous mix. Money and, and you know, behavior is, is tough for, for a lot of people, right? So, uh, you know, people like to, to argue with statistics and saying, well, it's not really 70% of, you know, because the statistics actually say about 70% of black households today are, are being um, managed by a, a single black mother. And people like to say, well, a lot of those households, there's a father who sees their children on weekends and helps out. Not talking about that. We're talking about the family structure. Okay, so there's a, a large majority, disproportionately, in the black community. I, I, I call it a community, more of it was like a disunity, but in black families throughout the United States, that that's being led by a single mother. And so, and there's so I, I like to and I have I like to have the, have this conversation with with black men a lot, even with the boys I used to mentor, is that. Um, and it's the, the onus is on us as black men. It really is. Is that um, I, th- I think black men we've we've abandoned, we've we've used the whole rap culture of degrading women and using them as sex objects. That has, that's that's has so much influence on, on 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 black Americans and and so as, as black men we just we just have to do better. We have to. This is why Catholic values are so important, why I wish um, the Catholic Church didn't just abandon the black community, because our values matter. Um, sex is for marriage. Marriage is a sacrament. This idea, Do you, you feel like the Catholic hierarchy has abandoned the uh, black community? I, mean, I just think there's just, just always been a disinterest, right? I think there was a period of time right there when we had nuns. Yeah. And um, nuns were free labor for schools. And so we had a lot of schools in, 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 in uh, urban centers where there's a lot of blacks. But once that free labor left, there's been no investment there in the schools. So because there's no investment there, there's been fewer conversions. Yep. Right. We yep. can't count on a predominantly black Catholic church, the culturally black Catholic church to do it because, you know, they're, they're an agency of the Democratic Party for the, for the most part. And so they don't evangelize the fullness of the faith. You look at St. Sabine up there in Chicago, you know, they're, they're, they're basically a Protestant church, I would say. So we can't count on a culturally black Catholic church to proclaim the true truth. The, the Episcopacy has, has abandoned it. So but Catholic values, I think, can save um, the black community. And, you know, I mean, obviously a father leading his family into Catholicism 
as you do, the number one goal of that, the number one fruit of that is the eternal salvation of souls. Think of how long heaven and hell is. But it's interesting at a much, much, much less important scale uh, or, or topic is families' economic growth. And you said something that really shocked me on a previous podcast. You said that nowadays, I think that you were talking about 2020, 2021, sometime in the 21st century here, that um, blacks of two-parent homes have a lower poverty rate than white families of two-parent homes. I was that really shocked me. I almost thought like you got to footnote that, and I, I'm blindsiding you right now because I didn't I didn't tell you off the air to footnote that. But did you say that right? Yeah, and I got it from uh, one of Thomas Sowell's books, um, Economics Economics Facts and Fallacies by Thomas Sowell. Um, he cites it in there, and you know Thomas Sowell has charts and everything to back up what he says. So, but um, so it's it's not it's not um, so. Um, black family two-parent homes, um, they they uh, per capita they have a lower poverty rate because I mean there's just more white Americans obviously, but um, by but by side by side black two-parent homes have a lower poverty rate than white Americans and by poverty rates we mean what the government tells us is poverty right so if black lives matter cared for the african-american community the number one thing they would be doing is to fight for the traditional family for families to stay together two parent homes i mean it's it's not that hard it's the it's the building block of every healthy society right. two parent homes and mother and a father and healthy relationship produce children who because you have standards there because yeah naturally Parents want their children to do better than them, right? Like my, my grandmother wanted her daughters to graduate from high school. My grandmother had an eighth grade education. My grandfather didn't have much more than that. Um, but they wanted their children to get a high school education. My mother wanted me to go to college, right? So you, and so you, you, you have that you have that natural thing. And so when you have two parents, you have oftentimes two incomes. You have stability. You have nurturing. You have all the components there to children can grow up in healthy homes, healthy children, healthy children move on to emulate that in their lives. You have so many people now, they don't, they don't know what type of husband to look for because they didn't have a father. Yeah. Um, you don't have, you don't have, you have young boys don't know how to be a man because they didn't have a father in the home. They think being a dad is something you do on weekends. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. yeah, I, I agree with you. If, if Black Lives Matter really wants, if they really think Black Lives Matter, then you have to, to promote the two-parent home. Yeah, that's right. The other thing that's interesting about communism is that it drums up conflict that maybe wasn't there. If you study the history of Russia and China, you'll see this big word class conflict. I think that comes directly from Marx, Lenin. And mm -hmm. so what Russia and China did is they, they took real differences between classes, but instead of healing those differences, the communists drummed up these differences and then turn people against each other to eventually control them into compliance. And then what did they do? They killed the non-compliant again at a rate of 14 times what the Nazis did 14 times. And so even though I'm seven months late on this podcast, I mean, no one's talking about Black Lives Matter now that Biden took his uh, unrightful spot in the White House. Oops, did I say too, too much politics there? Um, and I saw you had a video on why isn't anybody denying him community? So I figured I'm in good company talking about that. But um, 
<laughs> but what's interesting is even though that might seem like it's in our rearview mirror, communism's not done in this country. We just have to be ready for them to drum up another conflict essentially against First Amendment rights. J.P. Sears said on a beta males video, I'm going to read this directly. He said, and you'll think and you'll think you're contributing to a more inclusive world when you're compelled to call breastfeeding chest feeding because it's more inclusive to breastfeeding dads. But you don't realize this false inclusivity is based entirely in being uninclusive to free thought and free speech because mm. your beta brain specializes in being told what to think rather than how to think. And so even though Black Lives Matter is kind of in our rearview mirror, the reason I still think we need to be talking about this is because with everything that's happening in this country right now, all of this is to drum up conflict and to sift out who's going to be compliant and who is not compliant. Um, anything to add to that? Yeah, yeah that, that, that brings to mind China, right, and the whole social currency. Yeah. And, and cancel, well, you know, they would call it, social currency there in this country right now we will call it cancel culture that's right which is cancel culture is anti-culture <laughs> but <laughs> but yeah so 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 yeah so I, I see where that's headed now that you say that so in this whole cancel culture is forcing division creation of new language redefining language to create strife um and conflict and you and I didn't talk. I don't know if you're on the same page on me on COVID. And I mean, obviously, it's a real disease and God rest the souls of the people who've really died of, of COVID. But um, the fact that people like Bill Gates and people are co talking about a continued lockdown, some countries are arresting people for not masking and all of this stuff. Um, really, I think where we're heading is just two categories that the liberals pretend like they care about the LGBT community. They pretend like they care about the African-American community. But it's like a friend of mine said, all of this race conflict and gender identity and gender identity conflict that's getting drummed up, all of that's going to get pushed to the wayside to really determine who's compliant on the COVID stuff and who's not compliant on the COVID stuff. And I think she's right. And this can actually minority is such a silly term, but she's a minority herself who said that. Um, and she understands very well where all this is going. So I think we have to realize the reason we're not hearing about Black Lives Matter is because the left doesn't care about the black, the, the blacks. The reason we're not hearing about how many um, black babies are being killed in New York City in this genocide that was established by Planned Parenthood is because the left doesn't care about this stuff. The reason why um, we're not going to hear about First Amendment rights being sunk for anybody who's conservative is because the left doesn't want the right to have First Amendment rights. The reason why we're not going to hear the death rates to this vaccine is because everything at this point is going to be about compliance. I don't know if you agree with me on that, but but the reason why I think we can draw this line between Marxism, communism, Black Lives Matter, government overreach and the continued lockdowns is the very warning of Our Lady of Fatima that the eras of Russia will take over the world. So blacks are just one pawn in this entire Marxist scheme for a global totalitarianism. I don't know if that sounds too conspiracy theory for you, but. I mean, it's, it's, it's you know, I, I never would, would. I mean, I will say, you know, and plus Black Lives Matter wants to defund the police. And we know it, to lead from socialism to communism, you know, you have to get rid of the police. Right. You know, yeah. You, 
you know, because the police are there to protect a system in place for wealth creation and capitalism. When you get them out the way, you can attack wealth and take wealth. So, um, so it's so obvious, you know, the whole defund the police movement is a whole. You're right. Thing. The, taking away the police is a right. huge part of Marxism. Yeah. You said I never, on. never, but I never connected though. I like how you said you could, the, the um. But I always wonder, what did you think about? I mean, because it had been, it had been so much easier to create more strife and division with President Trump still in place because everything Trump said was racist. Everything he said was racist. And they would they would use they would use every tweet of his to create strife and division. Yeah. And if you notice, nobody nobody didn't like Trump. No no one that's that's a double negative. Well, a lot of people they would say, well, I don't like Trump because of this, right? But they didn't they didn't it wasn't they didn't not like Trump. They don't they what they didn't like was what people said about Trump. That's right. I don't think you could find anything racist. He's ever, I went searching and searching, and I found well, I'll put it this way. Maybe you could sublimate out a couple things that were possibly racist, but you can find 20 phrases, ultra, ultra racist that Biden said. I mean, everybody knows about the real basic ones. If you don't vote for me, you're not black. But I mean, he had other ones. Do you remember the one where he said we want to make schools safe and happy for all for all kids, both the rich kid? How did he put it? The rich yeah, kids and the black kids. Poor kids are just as smart as white kids or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> right, poor, right. Kids, poor kids are just as smart as white kids. <laughs> right. I mean, if Trump had said something like that, it'd be the end of the world, right? Yeah. yeah. I um, mean, yeah, you're right. President Trump said a lot of things I wouldn't say, but objectively racist? No. No. But why, well, why, me... don't, why, why, why do you think there was such a scheme to get Trump out of office to replace him? With Biden, come Biden, um, with because you leave him in, you're able to continue to work this division, right? That's and he's even point. going along with the whole vaccine thing. I mean, so you had yeah, a- I was disappointed in that. Well, I want to read you a quote you said on uh, one of your podcasts. I get a lot of hate mail if I said this, but you can say it, so I'm going to read it back to you. White guilt is I couldn't tell if you said soft or self. White guilt is a soft expression of white supremacy. The only difference between the white liberal and the white Klansman in this regard is that the former learned to feel bad about being better than blacks while the, la- while the latter remains proud about the opinions he has he is better than blacks. But both white guilt supremacy and white non-guilty supremacy are both white supremacy. <laughs> That's a pretty bold <laughs> thesis. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it, it is. I mean, it's, it's white white liberals. I would say, you know, I'm saying, okay, I can't balk them all together. But I would say sure. white liberals who profess that um, that they need to be guilty and they need to self-examine themselves to figure out how they've been complicit in racism um, are just the same people as your your average KKK guy down in um, Podunk, you know, Mississippi, right? Um, and so the difference is that the white supremacist, you know, he's he thinks he's better than blacks, that blacks are lower than him, that blacks need him if they want to rise up. And he doesn't feel guilty about that at all. Doesn't sure. Um, that's 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 the idea that he 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 confidently believes. Now, 
and he's not guilty about it. But the other person, the Doesn't type of feel white guilty li- about it at least. Yeah, the white liberal described. Yeah, they they guilty about the what they believe that they're better than blacks. That blacks need their help. Yeah. That black. That is, it's, so it's the same idea. Just one is guilty. One one feels guilty. One doesn't feel guilty. But the the end result is is still is still the same. That's right. Well, David, thanks for a great evening. Do you have anything else you want to add to uh, to tonight's topic on Freemasonry or Black Lives Matter? I mean, I mean, there's so much we could say. I guess we could talk another time too. <laughs> yeah, we could do part two a little bit later. <laughs> but uh, happy Lent to you and uh, all the listeners. Just to uh, go over it again. Um, you can get David Gray on Facebook, Twitter, and especially his YouTube channel called David L. Gray. And his website is davidlgray.info. Thanks so much for uh, all the brilliant insights tonight. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Father Dave Nix. I'm so excited I've been on your show. 